Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. This is our special fifth anniversary episode. We're going to spend it in a tribute to the great engineer Jeff Emmerich with his longtime friend and assistant, Bill Smith. So yeah, five years. Who would have thought? This is episode number 258, and we started five years ago. The podcast has grown in terms of our audience, and right now I think we're in the top 200 in iTunes. At least I was told that. I haven't checked it myself. And we have lots of great new guests coming up for you in the coming year. So thank you for everyone that's listened. Thank you for all your support. And now let's get on with some news. This is kind of cool, I think. Warner Brothers is signing an algorithm to a record deal. (laughs) Yeah, it's a bundle of code by a startup company called Endel. And they use artificial intelligence to make personalized audio tracks that are aimed at boosting people's mood or productivity. Well, here's the thing that will blow your mind. They're signed for 20 albums, and they've already delivered five. And these five are a collection of sleep soundscapes entitled Clear Night, Rainy Night, Cloudy Afternoon, Cloudy Night, and Foggy Morning. And supposedly you can find these on Apple Music or on Spotify. I wasn't able to find them, and maybe I wasn't looking for the right title or something, but I couldn't find them because I wanted to check it out for myself. Anyway, these are designed to reduce anxiety primarily. Now, Amazon is a big investor, and you can see why, because what the company's trying to do is keep track of your emotions during the day via Alexa and then design music for whatever that emotion might be. So you might be thinking, okay, how does this work? Who is the artist here? Yeah, it's a good question. And it actually perplexed a lot of people, especially the copyright attorneys. So what they wound up doing is putting the names of all the software engineers as writers who will collect royalties. I can't imagine there are going to be a ton of royalties from people listening to this, but nonetheless, it's a step in a new direction. I don't know if it's better or worse. Now, you might say, okay, this is probably taking work away from artists who are doing something very similar and maybe that's true but i think the category is small enough that probably no one will feel it one way or the other so let's see where this leads if this goes beyond emotional categories then i think maybe songwriters ought to worry but right now don't lose too much sleep over it If you have any questions or comments, send in the questions at bobbyownercircle.com. Don't forget about my online courses on mixing, production, branding, and music business success at bobbyosinskicourses.com. That's all one word, bobbyosinskicourses.com. Also, get an expert analysis and objective opinion of your songs and mixes as a member of my Hitmakers Club. Go to hitmakersclub.com to learn more. Now, this is kind of interesting. A big counterfeit gear ring was just busted in Enpeg City in China. A company called Soundpoo, sound with a P-U at the end, was busted for manufacturing fake Shure, Sennheiser, Yamaha, and Harman gear. Now, we've been seeing 
clones like these for quite a long time, but the difference is these actually had the logos of Shure and Sennheiser and Yamaha and DBX. So what they were making were amplifiers, microphones, DBX processors, everything you can think of. Now, if you happen to go to their website, what you find is they have their own brand called Voxpu, V-O-X-P-U. And they make the exact same product. So if you look side by side, you find a Voxpoo amplifier or a microphone or a processor. And then you look right next to it and there's the DBX or the Sennheiser branded same product. It's tough enough to make things go in the world today in business, let alone having to deal with counterfeiters. So it's a good thing that this ring was busted and let's hope it stays that way. Recently, I had a conversation with engineer Bill Smith about the late engineer Jeff Emmerich, and I realized that there was a lot that we didn't know about the man, even though he is responsible for some huge hit records that shaped the lives and careers of so many people. Although he's most famous for recording the Beatles, Jeff recorded songs that we hear every day in the radio by The Zombies and Steeler's Wheel and America, Supertramp, Jeff Beck, Kate Bush, Oasis, Cheap Trick, and so many more. Bill Smith was his assistant and best friend for many years and knows about as much about Jeff as anybody. So I asked him to come on the show and to give us some insight to this great man. In the interview, you'll hear some interesting facts about how Jeff Mike Paul McCartney's bass, how he needed to get EMI's written permission to be able to experiment with some of his miking techniques, and those techniques are now standard in the way we do things in the studio, and how his bass and drum techniques have become so influential to today's recording, and so much more. I spoke with Bill via phone from his home in Los Angeles. Let's start with when you first met Jeff. When was that? I first met Jeff, if my memory serves correctly, Somewhere, I believe about 92, 91, somewhere in there. May have been a little earlier, actually. Um, when I was working at Cherokee, he came in to do a session there. Uh, couldn't tell you who it was for. Don't remember. Um, too long ago. Uh, but I was assigned to work with him. And uh, it was the first time I met him. And uh, we had a great time. You know, the two of us, we worked very well together. We got along very well, had the same sensibilities about music, same type of a work ethic. Um, we had a, sh a shared sense of humor, which helped make the sessions go a little easier, uh, as things like that always does, if you can keep it lighthearted um, and, and that sort of a thing. And, uh, we just got on very well as, as people. We had a lot in common, uh, you know, as we came to discover across the years, you know, in terms of our background and our family history and things like that, a lot of similarities. And, um, yeah, and then from there we just sort of moved forward. And he and I worked together uh, several times at Capitol when I had moved over to Capitol in 93. And um, we just sort of became very great friends. I just, you know, began to ring them up all the time and phone them and hi, how you doing? And, uh, let's go do this. Let's get lunch. And sort of just a, evolved a great friendship from, from there on out, you know, um, a true friendship, uh, you know, not just one based on, uh, 
um, adoration or, or, you know, that kind of a thing. Although obviously, you know, his work preceded him and all of that stuff, but it was something beyond sort of the uh, general, uh, you know, well, wow, all the things you've sort of done, you know, we, we developed a friendship that was more of a, uh, you know, uh, a guy type of friendship. Where yeah, we yeah. would talk about the music. We talk about gardening sprinkler systems that need to get fixed. They got to dig up the roots to my tree. Do you want to go to Home Depot? That sort of thing. We became sort of uh, intertwined in each other's lives, I suppose, over the years, um, which uh, was great. And I really got to know him uh, as a human being. Yeah. Uh, you know, in, in addition to his fine work as an engineer, of course, and, and all the things he had accomplished across his career. So that uh, that was a great blessing and something I will always uh, treasure, for sure. Let's talk about you working with him for a second. What did you learn from watching him? All kinds of things. Uh, be fearless is, is one thing. Don't be afraid to take chances. Be fearless. Um, don't pay attention to the so-called rules or unwritten rules of what you can or can't do or what you should or shouldn't do as well. Um, just be absolutely fearless in your pursuit of trying to make things better. Be fearless uh, in your pursuit of trying to make things different and new. And um, just because things don't look right or aren't the way you would typically see things set up uh, doesn't mean they're wrong. Uh, in fact, if you give things a chance that you'll actually be uh, very pleasantly surprised. Um, a lot of times at what you hear, don't, don't <laughs> pay attention to the meters, but then again, don't pay attention to the meters, right? If it's going in the red, that's okay. You don't look over there. You know, how does it sound coming out of the speakers? You know, yeah. stop looking at the meters, right? You don't make music with your eyes. Don't look, listen, right? Use yeah. your ears. How does it sound? If it sounds good, it sounds great. It is good. And it is great. Um, just from that, like that on the technical end of things, um, be happy to be there each day. Have a, a good, positive attitude. Right. Mm -hmm. For your, for your clients, try to, uh, you know, you're there to, to serve them and, and help them realize their goals and their dreams. So be there for that reason. It's not about you each day, right? It's about them. Um, have a sense of humility about yourself at all times, no matter how far you go up the ladder of success that, um, you can very easily knock yourself off the top of that ladder if you get uh, too big for your own britches and and that sort of thing. So be thankful that you're there. Be humble. Um, you have gratitude that you've been hired, and uh, just do the best work that you can. You know, if you're if you're asked a question, answer it. Answer it truthfully, and uh, just try to be a, a positive force in the room mm -hmm. as best you can can be as well just from that that side of the whole record making process which is you know 
aside, I think uh, a lot of people forget about Jeff, never forgot about that. He was always very in tune with, uh, you know, aside from the engineering expertise that I bring, am I bringing a positive attitude each day, mm -hmm. right? Am I someone that people are, are, are looking forward to spending 12 hours in a room with each day? Yeah. in those kind of close quarters and, and things like that. That's very important, but uh, equally important or in many ways, almost more important yeah. than the, 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 the technical end of things. You can be uh, an amazing engineer, but if nobody can stand to sit next to you for 12 hours a day, you're not going to get that far in the, in the long run. Yeah. You know? So yeah, just a, a tremendous amount of things for him. I know you talked to him for endless hours on the phone and in person, and I'm sure you asked him a lot of questions. I'm also sure that you asked him a lot of questions about his career and about certain projects that he worked on. Did he ever tell you things that really surprised you or you learned from? Um, yeah, in some ways, yes. In some ways, things that weren't so surprising some some things that I sort of expected in in terms of answers um, I guess the, the thing that came across to me as most surprising in all the things we would talk about is uh, the fact that no one project was more important than the other right that every client was viewed and treated equally in, in his eyes, right? It could be from the Beatles all the way down to uh, the albums he, to, to Elvis Costello, to, <clears throat> excuse me, to other bands he worked with, the Syrups, Nelly Mackay, right? People who aren't quite, say, as famous out there in the world. Everybody was treated equally, with equal respect, and he approached each project with, the same amount of enthusiasm and want to be there and, and positive uh, vibes and, and all of that. So that, that, you know, those things, although after knowing him as a person, I wasn't surprised. Um, at first, as I was getting to know him, you so it's, it's a refreshing thing to, um, to hear for, again, from someone who achieved the amount of success, uh, that he achieved in this industry. It's, it's, uh, again, reminds you just to be humble and, and he, more to the point, the reason why he was so successful mm -hmm. uh, in, in this industry, right. Which had, I think far more to do with who he was as a person and how he was with the clients and things like that. The, the engineering ability was the icing on the cake in, in many ways, but yeah, I mean, all kinds of things from, you know, how he would set up the live room with the musicians, set up orchestras, mic orchestras. He had a, a, some pretty radical concepts. Give us an example. Well, I mean, you know, a, 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 a fine example. I mean, there's many examples, but a lot of it, again, had to do with the fearlessness, you know, close miking things, orchestras, you know, everybody wants to, you know, Normal thing is put you know, put, the, put the violin mics, you know, ten ten feet away up in the air, and and things like that. He didn't bother with that. What was wrong with putting <laughs> the violin microphone two feet away from the violins, right? What was wrong with uh, taking the the, the horns, uh, the mics for 
French horns and shoving them right up into the bell of the French horns? Why do they have to be, you know, five foot back uh, or, or more and, and that sort of a thing? Um, I think just radical in approach to what he was hearing in his head as, as well. And the fact that recording things like that, like it, it doesn't have to be the traditional way if you don't want it to sound traditionally. Right. Mm-hmm. I, I want it I, I'm tighter. I want the, the orchestra to sound tight and in your face. Right. Uh, as he did, you listen to things, you, you know, uh, especially a lot of the orchestral stuff he did with the Beatles. There's hardly any room sound to it at all. It's very tight, very in your face. So he was very brave in, in, in doing that kind of stuff. His concepts for recording uh, the bass guitars, even McCartney's bass on a lot of things, uh, you know, just a small, small little amp head B15 amp in the, in the middle of the room with uh, a, a ribbon mic, you know, eight feet back from it. Wow. In, in, you know, in, in figure eight, so that you're catching the direct sound right off the amp, but you're also picking up a lot of the ambient in the room as well to add a bit of roundness and space around it um, and that sort of thing. So, you know, most everybody puts the, puts the microphones right up to the grill, Yeah, uh, you know, for these things. He, you know, back them off. Let's get a sense of depth to the sound and a sense of space around it and air and that sort of a thing. Usually don't think of a bass with having air around it. Do you? No. And, and again, if you look at a lot of these things, it's actually the exact opposite of traditional. You know, let's mic the bass from eight feet back with a figure eight microphone and let's get really get the sound of the bass where the, 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 the waveform can develop, right? In terms of the, the, the low end, you're mm-hmm. back far enough where the, the, the low frequencies and low, the low end waveform can develop a lot and fully let's get a lot of air and space around that. But then let's take the mics on violins, violas and celli and show them, put them two feet away. <laughs> right. Yeah. And let's get those really tight and in your face and things like that, you know, very different from what's normally again, considered the way to do things. Now, of course he was the first or considered to be the first to close mic drums and take the head off the bass drum. But that was taboo in the days of EMI, and he had to get a special dispensation for that, didn't he? Yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. It was complete and total taboo. In fact, people, he, you know, from what he told me and, and from some of the, uh, the other people who worked at EMI at, at the time, Abbey Road, as it's known now, but back then it was just known as EMI Studios, um, yeah, he, he, he sent the technical <laughs> and maintenance department, uh, into a tizzy by doing all that kind of stuff. And yes, he had to actually receive a, a written, uh, slip of permission to be able to move the mics closer than what the, the standard practice was at, at Abbey Road at the time. Um, but contingent that he only did it on Beatles sessions. <laughs> so once again, the, the Beatles being the exception 
to the normal everyday rule, right? Because they were obviously, uh, you know, selling the amounts of records they were selling and, and popularity of them. And uh, nobody was going to tell them, no, they couldn't do anything. So, uh, yeah, he did, he, he did that and more. And, and the thing too is, is if you listen to the records, right, you can really hear that change, right? Mm-hmm. The early records that Norman Smith recorded and Norman did an amazing job. Norman was a fantastic recording engineer and went on to be a, a fabulous producer of early Pink Floyd records and then an artist in his own right in, in England, Norman Hurricane Smith, um, who had a, a several number one uh, records as an artist. Norman's early records, they're, they're very clean. They're very tidy. They sound amazing. They're pristine. You don't really hear the bass too much. You don't really hear the kick drum too much. There's not a lot of low-end present or even lower mids. And if you listen to the last record Norman did, with the band, which would be Rubber Soul, and listen to that, and then immediately put on the, f- the next record, which is the first one Jeff did, which was Revolver, there's an enormous change in the sound between the two records. All of a sudden, the drums are up and in your face and, and loud and punching through, and the bass is really up there, and there's a a lot more low end. You hear the kick drum really for the first time, right? With, with that sort of fullness to, to the, to the, to the music and the records that wasn't there as much on the, on the early stuff. And again, nothing against Norman. Norman just approached things the traditional way where, you know, I think part of the, the great thing about Jeff when he took over and I think one of the reasons the, that uh, George Martin wanted him in there, and even the guys in the band, was that he didn't—he hadn't been there too long at that point. You know, he'd only been at the studio for about four years. Okay, so and he had been around for a majority of the early sessions. That's the, the thing about Jeff is that he was there the first night they ever came in for their original artist test tape session with Pete Best still on drums wow. from June of 62. Yeah, the second day he was working, second day he got hired at EMI, two, two, two days later, hired on Monday and Wednesday night, he's standing there watching this unknown group called the Beatles load their equipment in for their original artist test tape with Pete Best and then was Norman's assistant on a whole boatload of the early material, right? Those early records up to 66 when he took over. So Jeff was really there from A to Z for the, the majority of, of, uh, of everything. And uh, you hear, and, and the, the thing with Jeff, again, he, I, I think they wanted him because he wasn't a product of the system. Mm-hmm. At that point, in other words, he hadn't been there for 12, 15 years. It wasn't it, it, the rules weren't necessarily ingrained in him, right? Where he wasn't going to break them and things like that. And he was young as they were as well. I mean, he recorded Revolver when he was 19 years old. He was a kid, right? Wow. And um, 
and youth tends to want to push boundaries and wants to say, well, why can't I do it this way? This is right where if you've been somewhere for a long time, you tend to sort of maybe lose a little bit of that. But um, so he had that adventuresome spirit about him. And uh, the other thing too was I think he, when he took over in 66 was not only a big change in the recording of the music, and how he approached the recording of the music, but also in the music itself. And um, I think it was a great alignment of the planets or stars, if you want to say, because that's uh, him coming in in 66 for Revolver was also the beginning of the band and Lennon and McCartney becoming far more adventurous in their songwriting as well, you know. You just hit on something here that I don't think dawned on me until now, and that's that he was really the father of modern recording, if you think about it, from the standpoint that the drums were important and the sound was up in front. The kick drum, finally, you can hear, and the bass as well, which most records before that, they weren't approached that way at all. And it just never dawned on me that that's the case. I, You know, you, you think of Jeff as such an innovator, which he was, but... That's one thing I don't think is attributed to him, and it probably should be. I, I, I wouldn't argue on that, especially as it applies to records that were being made in the UK at the time, right? I think a lot of what Jeff was chasing, um, which he, he talked about many, many times, was the, uh, a lot of the sound coming out of Motown oh, yeah, right. here in the States at the time, okay? where they were, they would get these Motown records would come in in the UK and they would hear James Jameson and the bass is just huge and fat and round. And what are they doing in Motown that we're we're blowing it, Mm -hmm. right? Kind of how are they getting this much low end on the records and things like that. And I, I also think that applies to the guys in the band. I know McCartney, especially, and that was one of the directives. And one of the things, again, they were, were chasing, you know, were, was the sound of, of records that they were hearing, hearing coming out of the States at, at that time. How do we get this sound on our records? How do we get this much low end? And how do we get the bass to punch and, and cut through? So uh, yeah, as it applies to, to, to things uh, in the UK specifically, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Cause I think the only other records that were really out at that time that were, were like that was again, the stuff that was coming out of Motown yeah. at the time, you know, Jamerson or some of the things that, uh, um, uh, see some of the records Carol Kay played on and things like that. They mm-hmm. were chasing. I think there was a constant sort of competition, you know, well, yeah. they've done this. Oh, well, let's try to chase, let's right push ourselves to, to do something, uh, better, not only in the sound, but also in the songwriting yeah, yeah, as right. well. You know, Lennon McCartney being big fans of Brian Wilson and hearing things coming out like pet sounds or right. And like going, wow, (laughs) you know, how do we, how do we top this? But yeah, but absolutely. Jeff to me was always, 
and, and on all the subsequent stuff he did throughout the years, um, who was kind of a master of the low end and the bass and things like that. It, 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 the, the low end, the bass guitar was uh, um, an integral part of his sound and a consistent part of his sound throughout the decades is the way he approached that. You mentioned about how he recorded the bass, which in itself is really interesting. Was there an approach that he had to mixing in terms of the low end? Yeah, well, yeah, get it up there and make it sound good, I <laughs> think. You, you know, I mean, and, and, and he did use DI. I mean, using direct inject and all that did come into play as, as well. You know, so there's a lot of stuff yeah, especially on, on the later albums and things like that, you know, Abbey Road and uh, stuff on Magical Mystery Tour where it would be a DI um, uh, at, at times, sometimes a combination of, right, a DI and, and the amp with the, uh, the the microphone and things like that. Um, I, th- I think it was, see, the, the interesting thing to me that uh, I think, again, a lot of people don't realize. I think his his approach was, yeah, get the bass to sing, basically, right? And when they moved forward and got into the records like Pepper, okay, um, the thing a lot of people don't realize is that the bass guitar on pretty much everything on Pepper and a lot of the things on Magical Mystery Tour and that, the bass was actually put on last. Mm, yeah, It was the last thing to be, be recorded, which again is sort of the, the polar opposite of the way things normally are done. You get the drums and bass first, you get the foundation of the house and then you add on top of the foundation and you add the, you know, the second story, third story all the way up and you put the roof on the, on the house and it's unusual to build the house and then stick the foundation underneath last. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, as Jeff explained it to me and, and he would talk about it in a way, even though it was a completely backwards approach, it was also a great way to do the bass, right? Because it allowed him to dial in the sound Mm, after the, right? So once everything was there, then he could sit and really dial in and tailor the sound of the bass to fit in there perfectly with everything else that was going on. This was also where McCartney's approach to how he played the bass and the bass lines in the Beatles songs, again, changed radically. This is, you know, Jeff said that he and Paul would sit for hours and hours working on bass parts where Paul now had the freedom to actually compose a bass part for the specific songs and where his playing began to morph into this very melodic style of playing, these very melodic bass lines that would really fit uh, around and in and under everything else that was going on rather than just the standard, you know, the, 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 the sort of keeping the rhythm bass line kind of a thing, just you sort of hanging on the downbeats and stuff mm-hmm. where his playing got a lot more lyrical 
in, in that way. The, the other thing that I think about and, and thought about and talked to him quite a bit about is, again, the concept of doing the base last, which, for, again, from a, a, a recording, mixing, and engineering standpoint, is uh, completely backwards, but in the days of when all these records were done, was even more of a miraculous feat because as you're filling up a four track and you're marrying instruments together on the four tracks, which would happen all the time because you've only got four tracks, right? And you would take that four track and say, on, in the case of the Sgt. Pepper record, take that four tracks and then submix them down to mono or even two tracks to a stereo pair on a second four track machine, right? And yeah. open up two additional tracks for more overdubs and there being no time code back then. So once you did your submix to the second four track machine, that was it. There was no going back at that point. So he had to mix all that stuff imagining how the bass was going to fit wow. in there, right? You yeah. sort of had to hear it in your head and balance things accordingly, even though it may sound crazy, right, as you're making that submix, but once you put the bass underneath, then everything, it would all fit perfectly, yeah. So that to me was always a tremendous feat of um, not only engineering and mixing, but also imagination sure. Sure. on his part to actually imagine, okay, if there's a base here, let me imagine the space it's going to take up. Yeah. So I've got to put the vocal at this level or the guitars at this level and the drums here and yeah. You know, so the whole process is, is a pretty spectacular uh, feat of, of all of those things. Uh, something that uh, most people wouldn't be able to do today or want to do today, that's for sure. You know, we've been talking about the Beatles for the most part, but I don't think people understand the breadth of Jeff's career and all the other great projects he's worked on. Can you give us an, an overview? Oh, sure, absolutely. I mean, the Beatles were... You know, 10, well, not even for him, what, five, six years out of, of a 50-year career, 50-year-plus career? So, yeah, I mean, even though they're the most famous, it was actually a very a, a sliver in time um, compared to some of the other stuff he's done. I mean, most people obviously know that he continued to work with Paul McCartney mm -hmm. and worked on Paul for, you know, countless numbers of records. Band on the Run, obviously, the, the, the most well-known one, but, you know, Ram, Venus and Mars, London Town, Tug of War, uh, Flaming Pie, but went on to do so many other things. The Zombies, the Odyssey and Oracle record, which is a fantastic record, which, uh, you know, time of the season uh, is from the Odyssey and Oracle record. A, a great hit that everybody knows, time of the season from the Zombies. Uh, actually, that... That record, the Odyssey and Oracle record, he did, uh, I think, uh, started work on that one like a week and a half after they finished up Sgt. Pepper. Huh. That was his next next go-round. Yeah, with, with, 
the Odyssey and Oracle record, which is uh, a fantastic record. Uh, for those who haven't heard it, please, you know, I encourage everyone to hear that. It's an amazing record. But Steelers Wheel, right? You know, the, the self-titled Steelers Wheel record with Jerry Rafferty uh, stuck in the middle with you. Yeah. You know, is is Jeff's work. Everybody knows that that from uh, just the radio play, obviously a big hit song. And then uh, anybody who's seen Reservoir Dogs, obviously, you know, knows knows that song. But uh, Robin Trower, of course, Robin's biggest record, Bridge of Size, uh, which is a fantastic fantastic record. Yeah, absolutely. Um, let's see what else. America. Mm-hmm. Right, worked on you know four or five records with America, and uh, you know a bunch of hit songs with those guys. Tin Man is Jeff's work. Tin Man is amazing, one of the biggest hits. Um, Sister Golden Hair, um, Lonely People, for instance. Right, all these hit songs, great hit songs that uh, you know. Uh, most people know, uh, unless you're 18, and hopefully if you are, you'll be finding them soon. But uh, yeah. that that work, uh, let's see, Elvis Costello, you know, his work with Elvis Costello, uh, Imperial Bedroom that he produced, uh, and uh, all that, Elvis Useless Beauty, which he produced for Elvis Costello, which are some of Elvis's, as far as I'm concerned, best records. Yeah. There's beautiful records, and he really helped Elvis go from just sort of the angry rocker and and help take his music in a whole different direction. Um, Gentle Giant, you know, mm-hmm. huge for, for people who are fans of, of prog rock and, and progressive rock. Gentle Giant, one of, one of the best bands in, in that uh, genre of music. Gentle Giant, Nick Hayward. Uh, Ringo Starr on the, the Vertical Man record, Cheap Trick, uh, Ultravox, uh, Gino Vanelli, um, Super, I mean, G Super Split Tramp. Ends. Yeah, Super Tramp, yeah, he, the, the, uh, in, in the Quietest Moments record. Um, Nazareth, Trevor Rabin, Nick Hayward, Big Country, hmm. um, those guys, Maha Vishnu Orchestra. Mm. With McLaughlin, I mean, just uh, great work with those guys. Badfinger, you know, the Straight Up album. No matter, no matter what, yeah. their biggest hit, you know, off the Straight Up album for for Badfinger. Um, a bunch of records with Art Garfunkel, um, Jeff Beck, Kate Bush. Yeah, well, yeah, Jeff Beck. Yeah, the Wired album, which he didn't record, but he mixed. Oh, okay. And uh, to me, that's just as good, though, man, because. <laughs> The mixes on that record are fantastic. Yeah, absolutely, just just beautiful use of space and reverb and um, very atmospheric and 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 just fantastic uh, mixes and 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 that sort of thing on on that record. But yeah, it just sort of goes and goes and goes. You know, there's uh, um, such a a quality of work between all of those acts across all the years yeah and uh you know it's 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 a, a, a high quality consistency right of um of work with all of it you know there's something i want to get to and that there's some misconceptions out there about the things that he did or what he worked on and, and there were some things that you wanted to straighten out straighten those misconceptions out 
So uh, what are those? Well, I don't know if they're necessarily misconceptions per, per se, but, you know, I think a lot of times Jeff, especially as it relates to his work with the Beatles, tends to get overlooked for the things that he contributed to those records. You know, mm-hmm. I think the world sort of um, credits the Beatles and George Martin. Right. But it was so much more than that. It wasn't George Martin didn't record those records. George Martin didn't, uh, no offense to Mr. Martin, obviously. Right. But it, um, he didn't puzzle his way out of how am I going to get all of this on a four track machine? Right. Or how am I going to make John Lennon sound like the Dalai Lama singing from the top of a mountain? Or how am I going to do this? How am I going to do this? How am I going to meet there? Uh, the nonstop demand and and, uh, uh, and 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 push for new, different, new new sounds, things sounding different. So I think you know Jeff was as integral in the records he engineered for the Beatles. Uh, you know, Revolver, Magical Mystery Tour, a, a bunch of the Wine album. Abbey Road, these things which are considered by most people to be the highlights of their career, these, these records. And um, I think he and his innovations, technically, his imagination uh, of uh, new and different ways to do things, okay, close-miking the drums, uh, you know, different ways to approach recording the orchestras, Things like that, his use of um, ADT, right? The uh, sort of the artificial or automatic, as some people say it both ways, double tracking, the use of, of that um, in, in the mixes and, and things like that. Um, I also think, too, you know, most people, especially in the States, most people have only really heard the stereo versions of all those Beatles records, you know, certainly Revolver and Pepper and, uh, and things like that. And, and they really deserve to hear and listen to the mono versions of, of those records because the mono versions are really the definitive versions of those songs. And a lot of the singles that were released as well over time, Paperback Writer and Rain and things like that. Um, because the things you hear in the, in the mono mixes that you don't get in the stereo mixes is just this aggression, mm-hmm. this real sort of rock and roll aggression um, that doesn't really come through uh, as much in, in the stereo mixes. The records and the singles and things like that were never uh, meant to be heard in stereo, really. They were recorded and designed uh, and built with only mono in mind uh, back then. You know, they were they were built with British UK radio in mind, which was mono. Yeah. And so everything was was really designed to be heard in mono. The the mono mixes is uh, are where the band was present. Jeff, George Martin, and everybody worked together to get those mixes and things perfect. And when you listen to the mono version of revolver and then listen to the stereo version, it's night and day. Basically the mono version is so far superior 
um, imbalances in tone and aggression. The low end, the guitars are a lot more chugging and upfront. It's, it's, a, you really get to hear the, the Beatles as a rock and roll band on, on those things, especially stuff like paperback writer as well. And, um, Sergeant Pepper as well. Sergeant Pepper is a radically different record in mono than it is in, in stereo. And it's far superior in mono than it is in stereo. I know Ken Scott told me that they would spend all of their time with the band. Everybody would be working on the mono mix and then the band would leave for the stereo mix and they would do it in a half hour or 45 minutes and that would be it. They wouldn't spend any time at all on it if they did a separate stereo mix as well. Well, yeah, well, they did a, a, a stereo mixes for, for all those things. I and mean, yes, they were done sort of after the fact. And, and nine times out of ten, no, the guys in the band weren't present. They just left it to George Martin and Jeff to do and just trusted them, obviously, to do it. Because, again, as far as anybody was really concerned, the mono was the thing, yeah. right? That yeah. was the record. And, um, no, I don't think they... You know, uh, they, they certainly wouldn't mix the, the stereo versions of these records in half an hour or 45 minutes. They certainly took their time and and made them the best that they could possibly make them, you know, giving, giving me the limited amount of things they could really do in terms of making them stereo. Right. Right. right? Which is why, you know, a lot of people over the years have, have thought, well, you know, some of the panning choices are a little strange or why are the drums sort of more to one side than the other and things like that. But it's really because many of the elements were married together on the four tracks. Right. Right. So you couldn't break things apart and do a stereo mix as we can do today. You know, when you've got, you know, a a tambourine, a rhythm guitar, and the lead vocal all married together on one track, right? Or other things, you're you're pretty limited in what you can do in terms of spreading things out in, in in a stereo field. And then even by doing that, you're things may seem a little weird, but you're also upsetting the balances. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Of the instruments, because again, everything was designed to be blended and balanced and heard in mono. Did, and as soon as you start moving things off to the side, yeah. all of that changes. So they certainly took their time. I don't think uh, you know Jeff uh, or George Martin were, were going to let anything go out that they considered to be substandard. Right. right. You know, it, it may not have taken as long because probably because the band wasn't there as will happen a, a lot when there's four other guys throwing in opinions it can sometimes slow things down a little bit as anybody who's made a record knows you know so it may not have taken as much time but they certainly took their time bill did jeff have a preference for gear uh in terms of what well, microphones, consoles, outboard. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Was was there something that he had to have when he was working, or was he pretty much agnostic? Um, no, he liked what he liked. You know, preferred Neve consoles, Neve API consoles. You know, in the later years, especially. You know, I mean, uh, at the time with um, 
you know, in the Beatles era, he, he loved the red 51 desk, which was the desk used on, on, you know, 90% of all the Beatles stuff. He loved the sound of that console. Didn't really like the, uh, the TG consoles as they came in, you know, because they were transistorized and, and all that. He thought they sounded a little too hard for him. Yeah. But, um, you know, that would only be in the EMI facilities. Outside of the EMI facilities, yeah, he preferred Neve consoles, preferred the sound of them, obviously designed uh, with Rupert the, the the four sort of famous air consoles, you know, the, the ones that were installed down at Air Montserrat and uh, Oxford Circus as well, designed the, uh, the EQ and all that along with Rupert Neve. So, I mean, he was very heavily involved with, with Neve uh, way back when and, and just preferred their consoles, preferred API consoles, again, which are very similar to Neve and sound, you know, very warm, thick yeah. sound um, in terms of uh, microphones. Yeah, in many ways, anything went, although, you know, he did love 47s and 48s and U67s and, you know, the large diaphragm, uh, you know, two mics had a preference for all of those things, but uh, he would try anything. Coles, right, was a big fan of the Coles ribbon mics, loved the Royer ribbon mics as well and, and used those extensively and, uh, but everything was kind of up for grabs in a certain way in the, in the microphone world. Uh, you know, outboard-wise, uh, you know, not that much. 1176s, you know? Mm -hmm. You had a bunch of 1176s. He was a happy camper. Or an old Altec compressors or Fairchilds. He was the master of the Fairchild, as far as I was concerned. Mm -hmm. uh, and and uh, still am, right? Um you know, I've never really seen anybody use a Fairchild as effectively uh, as as he could. Although he didn't like the stereo Fairchilds, he was not a fan of the uh, the six seventies. Preferred the mono six sixties, oh, okay. and would use those uh, as a stereo. He would use the two monos across the stereo bus rather than the the stereo one. He thought the fact that the stereo one. That, that both channels were sharing a common power supply. He didn't think it sounded the same mm. as the two monos, right, with two separate PSUs, that it, the stereo was the stereo unit was a little thinner sounding because of that. So he kind of rejected this, the stereo Fairchild, but, but loved the, uh, the, the mono ones. And, uh, you know, whatever good reverbs were lying around, loved the NT140 plates and, and that um, used, uh, you know, tape, uh, tape delay extensively and, and, and continued to use ADT as well. You know, mm -hmm. he and I figured out a way to, to, to do ADT in the digital world to, to really do it the old fashioned way, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and do it in, in, the, in the digital world, you know, because a lot of ADT, ADT is based uh, on taking the original sound off the sync head right. of a 24 track machine, right? Which would then go to an external two track with a VSO on it and that sort of thing, which, you know, in the modern era of uh, workstations, there is no sync head anymore. So he and I figured out a way to, to make it work via copying tracks and, 
advancing them time-wise and, you know, the, the little, little tricks that we had to go through and stuff like that to get ADT to really work, which he was very happy when we figured out a way to do that, that kind of thing. But, um, no, I mean, he was very, in a lot of ways, um, very minimalist in, in, in outboard gear and, and things like that. Um, he, he liked what he liked and, uh, he was, uh, used compression extremely effectively, uh, on his records. Again, being the polar opposite in many ways of what you're traditionally taught. Right? Don't yeah. compress things too much. Don't over compress. Jeff would just hammer stuff. <laughs> okay. With compression. <laughs> right? And yeah, the first time I, I saw it, it was, uh, I made my eyes bulge out <laughs> uh, again, but it was a matter of don't look at the meter. How does it sound? And it's sort of how he got everything to hit really hard and just be kind of like right in your face. But it didn't sound overcompressed or anything like that when he would put it in the mix again because he understood how to use the compressors, mm -hmm. right? Fast attack versus slow attack, release times, compression ratios, mm -hmm. right? And how to mix and match all of those things, right? So you could compress stuff fairly, fairly uh, judiciously. And it didn't sound, well, it sounded great, you, you know? So, um, again, that's a lot of the stuff that, uh, you know, you really have to learn from somebody these days. You know, you can't, uh, all the, the young guys and gals out there these days, you can't learn that stuff uh, from a YouTube video. Yeah, right, right. Right? And you can't learn it by yourself in, in your bedroom uh, uh, working in Pro Tools with a plug-in. Yeah. The plugins are the plugins are radically different than what the hardware equivalents do. You know, they yeah. just don't sound the same. They don't work the same, and neither the twain shall ever meet. You know. Yeah. Um, can, can you? So that was yeah, eye, eye opening for me. That that kind of thing. Can you tell the story about the Neve console? I guess it was at Air Montserrat, the high frequencies. Yeah. Well, that was. I mean, Rupert used to talk about that, right? Where it was. Um, Again, when Jeff was designing the EQs for those specific consoles, right, with uh, working with Rupert to lay out the EQ, the frequencies, and all that kind of stuff, Rupert had sent over a, a, a prototype, right, for Jeff to check out. And um, Jeff got back to him saying there's some, some, there was something wrong with the high end on there. You know, it didn't, didn't, didn't sound right right it was something something was not not quite right with the top end and uh had rupert sort of scratching his brain as to you know what 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 is he hearing right mm -hmm. i don't hear it nobody else could hear it everybody thought jeff was nuts right and um so anyway i do you know sent sent the thing back to rupert and i guess rupert took it and put it up on the bench and began to go through all of his diagnostics on the thing and did that. Yes. Found something amiss. Right. And I can't quite remember what it was, something in one of the capacitors or something like that, which was affecting the ultra high frequencies on the EQ sort of up, up around 15, 20 K 
in that area, right? Mm-hmm. It was, was not much to Rupert's surprise. It was not correct. And um, Rupert was shocked that Jeff was able to discern this just from listening when no one else could pick it up at all. And, uh, you know, after that, Rupert obviously was enamored with Jeff and, uh-huh. and thought he had the greatest set of, set of ears out there yeah. in the business and, and in the world that he could pick up these sort of, uh, uh, this, this particular anomaly um, in a, in a range where most humans shouldn't be able to hear, yeah. you know, and I talked to Jeff about it a lot and, you know, Jeff said to me, it wasn't that I couldn't, it's not that I could hear it was deficient, it, but I could feel it. Mm. Right. You know, something when you just sort of sense and feel something just isn't quite right, you know, and, um, I think it says a lot about Jeff because, uh, you know, Jeff couldn't have told you what was wrong with the EQ. He just knew something was wrong, right? Subjectively felt that it, it wasn't correct, right? Which is, um, again, for me, a lot of who and what Jeff Emmerich was as an engineer and producer, right? He was not the most technically oriented person couldn't tell you how, what a capacitor did or a resistor or how things were wired together, did not understand things from an electrical perspective or a, a design perspective or things like that. But, um, you inherently from an emotional and feeling aspect uh, of things, right? Yeah. Which t- to me was one of his greatest assets. It was never right. He could, he didn't get bogged down in how does this work? Right. What's, uh, but uh, it was more about how do uh, you know, how do I get this to do what I want it to do? Right. I want it to sound this way. So I, right. So think, again, his sort of, I don't want to say ignorance, but lack of knowledge into the inner workings of things again, gave him a, 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 as far as he was concerned, a great freedom to just go, well, just turn the knob all the way to the right. <laughs> why can't I? Okay. Yeah. Well, why can't you, I want it to sound like this. And, and so don't let, you know, just start twisting things and turning things until you got it to, you know, he wasn't, um, he was, you know, you know, to him, it was more, I think, and my take on him was more sort of uh, painting in, in a way. I don't want to say that he was creating art because that sounds a little pretentious, but it was more, you know, more of that, though. It was more of that, more from the creative pushing the colors and pushing sound around a palette to get it how you want it to sound, like building something out of clay and molding it, right? Yeah. So that you've got a vision in your head of what you want it to be, and it's a matter of sort of just pushing and pulling and changing this and, and changing that. So his his approach to everything was, was more from an artistic perspective than, say, a technical perspective, mm-hmm. which I think was um, a, a great thing and, and freed him up. Al Schmidt is the same exact way. Right. Al Schmidt is again, 
not the most technically minded, but it's more about how am I spreading the sound around this canvas that, right? How does it feel? Does it touch me emotionally, right? How do I bring out the best in the song from an emotional aspect? Right. And and that sort of a thing. They, they understood that people don't relate to uh, circuit boards Hmm. or capacitors or pieces of metal. People relate to emotion, however, and uh, people relate to how it touches them. How does this make me feel? And how do I create an atmosphere with these things like, um, given Jeff used to talk to me about a lot about um, looking at the music, and I don't mean looking at the uh, uh, a workstation screen. He couldn't turn Pro Tools on, right? He would, he couldn't even start the thing up, um, let alone use it or even look at it. He didn't even want to see the Pro Tools screen ever. Hardly ever looked at the thing. Didn't even want to know it was there. Um, but he would talk about looking at the music in terms of the colors, mm. right? And uh, bass drums and bass guitars being sort of blacks and browns and keyboards and guitars being sort of blues and violets, right? And that those sort of oranges and things like cymbals and, you know, high-end percussion and that being sort of the the yellows and golds, Hmm. right? And how am I, do I have... And so he would almost see the the frequency spectrum of of a song as he mixed it from low to ties again, almost as a painting yeah. in, in ways, you know, or the blues and the, you know, do I have enough top end, the colds and the shimmer and is the sort of the, the low end. He saw things um, in a visual way as well, not just sort of uh, in an oral way of listening to it. It was also, visual to yeah. him quite a bit as well, which is um, uh, a unique way of looking at it because it is really that as well when you think about it, yeah. you know, in terms of tonality and spectrum and what occupies what place and how does it all sort of blend together, right? And, and that. The last question, Bill. We talked a lot about Oh, many things that I don't think a lot of people know about Jeff, but is there something that we didn't talk about in terms of what people don't know about him? Yeah, I mean, there's there's probably so much. I mean, obviously so much that I know about him after, you know, he and I being sort of best friends for almost 30 years. I mean, obviously, uh, you know, that's something you can't replace. You know, Jeff was, um, I think a, a lot of people felt that they could never talk to him, which was a shame, right? Um, he was one of the most humble men I've ever met on the, on this earth for, for the, the things that he achieved and accomplished with his life. He had no ego whatsoever. He would never broadcast his achievements. He was incredibly humble uh, about 
all of those things. I think that's a, a great lesson to learn um, from from a human standpoint. I have a good story about that. That's exactly right. So I had met Jeff several times, but more or less in passing. And we were at a convention somewhere, and I was walking down one side of the street, and Jeff was on the other. And I saw him, and I was actually afraid to approach him. And I thought, you know, he won't recognize me, and he'll feel like he's being accosted. And Jeff went out of his way to come across the street to say hi to me. And I was so tickled because it's like, man, this guy knows I'm alive, <laughs> you know? And it was an example of, of Jeff being Jeff where, just as you say, really humble guy and very approachable, very approachable. Extremely approachable. Saw himself and, and no different than anyone else. Yeah. And uh, would never, like I say, would never broadcast his achievements. The gentleman who lived across the street from him here in Los Angeles, his neighbor Kenton, lived across the street from Jeff for 25 years, had hundreds and hundreds of conversations with Jeff over the years, sort of out in front of their houses, you know, weather, gardening, et cetera, news, all that kind of stuff. 25 years, his neighbor, Ken, had no idea what Jeff did for a living. Huh. Had no idea who he was, not one time in 25 years that he ever mentioned Oh, by the way, I'm Jeff Emmerich, and I did all of this kind of stuff. So there, you know, there you have it. 25 years he lived across from a guy and uh, thought Jeff was a screenwriter for TV, <laughs> <laughs> which tickled me to, to no end and was blown away to realize that, oh, my God, this, I've been living across the street from the guy who did all of this amazing work, worked on music and records that not only turn the music industry on its ear, but turn the world on its ear and, and change the world. And here I am, uh, you know, I just think he's this nice, to me, he's just this nice, private, quiet guy who lived across the street from me. So he was incredibly humble. He had a great sense of humor. Okay. Absolutely fantastic, fantastic sense of humor. Almost mischievous. If you didn't know him, You'd never know that it didn't come across. He didn't come across that way. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, because yeah, out there in the world and all that, he was always very guarded. He was an incredibly private man and, uh, and he was always gracious and humble, spoke to everybody. And yeah, as, as your story illustrated, would go out of his way to, to say hello to people. And, um, it's a shame people, over the years thought that, uh, you know, oh, he won't want to talk to somebody like me. And many people said that to me. And I would look at them and go, what are you, crazy? Just go say hi. It's just Jeff. <laughs> He's not going to bite you. Okay. Just go over and say hello. Don't act all goofy and weird like you're acting now. <laughs> Going, oh, my God, that's Jeff. I mean, just go over and say hi. Tell him who you are. He'll talk. He'll sit there and talk your ear off. Once you get him going you can't shut him up, you know, and, and he'll talk to you about anything you want to talk about. He's a highly intelligent man, music. You want to talk about art, airplanes, politics, well, he'll sit there and talk to you about it. And, uh, everybody who sort of heeded my advice and would go over would all, you know, call me up the next day or whatever and say, God, thank you so much for, you know, pushing me to go over and, and say hi to him because it meant so much to me. And, um, I wish more people had done that, you know, in a couple of months since his passing, 
there's been a lot of people who have said to me, uh, you know, that they, uh, they regretted not doing that, you know, and I wish that they had because he was such a lovely person. And yeah, if, um, if you didn't know and spend a lot of time with him, yeah, that the humor would, uh, escape, uh, most people, but, um, yeah, almost a mischievous sense of humor. And, uh, you know, he and I would sit at his house watching faulty towers mm. and laughing our butts off at John Cleese and, uh, all that kind of stuff. And, and just was, he just, he enjoyed life, Bobby, you know what I mean? and lived it to the fullest and he didn't take himself all too seriously, right? Realized, um, and had the grace and humility to realize that, um, it was maybe in a way divine intervention and that he was, um, one, one spoke on a wheel that was in the right place at the right time. And I mean him, the Beatles, George Martin, right? Where the world was at at that time, right? And and meeting something like the Beatles, that it was really an alignment um, of of things and realized that and was humble enough to realize that and um, never never thought he was uh, above or better than anybody else was open to anybody's ideas, constantly learning, constant fascination about how can you do things differently, Mm -hmm. right? Even, uh, you know, after all these years, even he and I would talk about stuff that I've done on records I would be working on. And, you know, he would say, well, what do you mean? What's this you've done? And how, what's this? And how did that? And so, you know, he would pick my brain for things as well. And, and many other people, mm-hmm. he was fascinated, never, never stopped learning. And I think that's also such an important lesson for all of us out there that even someone who achieved the pinnacle of, of success in, in our industry and in the engineering field, the guy who's recorded and worked on the most famous records of all time, in the history of this earth uh, and probably will continue to be for a long time to come, um, never stopped learning, never lost that want to, to, to learn new things and, and learned uh, new things from everywhere and realized that he could and, and right. Never got too big for his purchase that he didn't think, uh, you know, Oh, what can I learn from, from, from this person or that, that he was, uh, never lost that sort of wide-eyed fascination of uh, you can, you could, and you should endeavor to constantly improve yourself, um, not only as a human being, but in your chosen profession each and every day. And uh, that is one of the things that will provide you with a career that lasts for decades. You know, that, that sense of constant improvement and, uh, and respect for the clients, the artists, respect for the music, respect for the fact that you get to do something that you love and enjoy in in a world full of, in a a world where most people don't get that honor and privilege to do something that they love and make a living at it. Um, yeah, he was, uh, he was a terrific person. 
he he really was all you know just well rounded and uh yeah those are those are a lot of the things I miss the most having just good 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 laugh with him and you know uh and he was just a regular person, you know that's the thing most people don't uh, under you know they they kind of forget you know he was just a regular guy he had sprinkler problems at his house like everyone else does or my drains have clogged up what am I gonna do or they got, you know, tree roots have busted through my pipes or I got to go to Home Depot and I've got termites and there's squirrels in my garage. And, you know, he was just, uh, yeah, just the same as everyone, as everyone else, you know, and uh, he's a terrific, terrific man. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyoinnercircle.com. To listen to the episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com, or you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and now Radio Public. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyoinnercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Yeah.